Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 9 on February 17th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Mr. Howard Ragsdale, President, and Mr. Christopher Eastley, Managing Director of the Air Medical Operators Association. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 8, and cover some recent air medical news. I'm keeping my eye on the iTunes store, as it was reported by a listener after episode 7, on how the Air Medical Today podcast is being listed. With their refresh of the layout of the iTunes store, the podcast and one of my other shows... Uh, was only playing 30 seconds uh, under the preview button, which was an added feature. If you subscribe or download any of the podcasts, however, they will play in their entirety. I've reported this issue to iTunes and have not heard back as yet. As I said in the last episode, however, my guess is that it is all in the rollout of their new design and that hopefully this issue will correct itself. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. As I have been mentioning for several episodes now, I continue to try and locate all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook. If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left-hand column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please either leave a message on the page or send your page's link to me via email. I would like to be the directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and easily fan fellow Air Medical and critical care providers. Today is Critical Care Transport Nurses Day, so I wanted to give a big thanks to all the nurses in our air medical and critical care transport community. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. Um, There was follow-up to the Southwest Medevac helicopter crash at Fort Bliss, Texas on February 5th. 
An initial report from the National Transportation and Safety Board stated that the ground crew lost radio communication with the crew on board and that there's a possibility there was a misrepresentation on whose frequency they were supposed to be on at the time of the crash. The ground crew observed the helicopter make two circles and then a third wider turn before plunging towards the ground at a 45-degree angle. The flight was part of an Army training mission where the crew was attempting to pick up a man on the ground to simulate the nighttime emergency transport of an injured soldier. Standard company practice would be for the aircraft's pilot and at least one paramedic to be wearing night vision goggles. When the helicopter crashed into the desert terrain, it left an 18-inch crater. The crash also set the cockpit on fire. A crash impact fire can mean that the aircraft was still operating under power, and operating under power can indicate that the pilot lost control or was disoriented. Investigators discovered the helicopter broken into several pieces with the forward portion of the right skid toe fractured and embedded in hard soil. In Haiti earthquake news, I had hoped to get a call into Dr. Howard Werman, emergency physician and medical director of MedFlight of Ohio, who is volunteering in Haiti this week. We have been in email contact, but there was not a way to talk on the phone. Uh, Holly left for Haiti last week after the podcast. Dr. Werman reports that they are currently staffing a medical clinic at Fort Liberty, which is associated with the local Baptist church. They are seeing over 200 children and adults on a daily basis with very limited access to labs, including testing for malaria and typhoid. There are two orthopedic surgeons with the mission, which has allowed them to perform some minor procedures and orthopedic work. They have seen many displaced persons from the Port-au-Prince area and some very tragic stories and traumatized children. Dr. Werman's work has been mostly in primary care, and he has a colleague of his who is also an emergency physician from the Toledo area of Ohio who has been assisting in conscious sedations for surgical procedures. A flight nurse from MedFlight is also with Dr. Werman working in the clinic. I continue to track news on members of our air medical community who are volunteering their time in Haiti, so please email me if you know of others uh, that are working there, and I will put those in a future episode. As reported last week, President Obama called for a bipartisan health policy summit. This uh, week, the White House released that guest list included nine Republicans have been invited to join 12 Democrats and a handful of White House advisors for the summit, which is scheduled for February 25th, with the aim to capture workable ideas from both parties in an effort to pass a health care reform package on Capitol Hill. President Obama is expected to preside over the meeting, which will be televised live. Topics will include insurance reform, cost containment, expanding coverage, and the impact reforming the U.S. health care system will have on the nation's debt load. Party leaders from both sides of Capitol Hill, as well as senior lawmakers from both parties, made the guest list. 
Republican Senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Mike Enzi of Wyoming, both of who spent months working with Democrats as part of a tight-knit bipartisan team that ultimately failed to garner GOP support, and both are the senior Republicans on the Senate committees that shaped reform legislation. Senate Chairman Max Baucus from Montana, Tom Harkin from Iowa, Christopher Dodd from Connecticut, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Joe Kyle were also invited from the Senate. On the House side, the three committee chairs who helped write their version of the health reform bill and their Republican counterparts on the committees were invited. They will join party leaders Nancy Pelosi, John Bonier, Steny Hoyer, and Eric Cantor as invitees. Further, Kathleen Sebelius from Health and Human Services, Vice President Joe Biden, and Nancy Ann Dupari, Director of the Office of Health Reform, will be in attendance. Other representatives from the Office of Management and Budget, the Congressional Budget Office, and the Joint Committee on Taxation will be present. In other news, the NTSB is to hold public hearings on the most wanted safety improvements. That meeting will take place tomorrow, Thursday, February 18th, to review its most wanted safety recommendations directed at other federal agencies. The most wanted list was developed in 1990 to focus attention on safety improvements the board believes will have the greatest impact on transportation safety. Some of the issues to be reviewed this year include emergency helicopter medical services, intelligent highway technologies, motor carrier operations, and operator fatigue. The board also will discuss issues concerning railcar design and marine safety management systems. A live and archive webcast of the proceedings will be available on the NTSB's website, and I will provide news from the meeting in the next podcast. The National EMS Pilots Association announced this week the release of the latest version of its heliport safety presentation, which is version 2.3. This presentation is intended to provide architects, contractors, hospital administrators, hospital staff, risk managers, safety officers, insurance underwriters, air medical providers, and aviators with information and guidelines that must be considered in the design and maintenance of a heliport. This presentation and other materials related to the safety of air medical operations is available on the NEMSBA website under Training and Safety tab. I will have a link uh, in the show notes for that. From Tasmania, Australia, Premier David Bartlett defended himself against Liberal Party accusations of misuse of taxpayer-funded resources after Bartlett used the Westpac rescue helicopter to help launch a $36 million campaign pledge. Liberal Party State Director Jonathan Hawks has written to the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet seeking actions over a number of what he called increasingly serious breaches of the caretaker conventions by labor in Tasmania. 
Taxpayer-funded resources are not to be used for party political advantage under the convention, but Mr. Hawks said that there's been a number of apparent breaches of the convention in just the first three days of the campaign. The helicopter is funded significantly through the budget of the Department of Police and Emergency Management and managed by a trust whose chair is from Tasmania Police. Mr. Bartlett said that the flight was provided by the company to demonstrate the capability of rescue helicopters. It was against the backdrop of the helicopter that Mr. Bartlett committed $36 million over four years to establish, staff, and run a dedicated emergency medical helicopter service. The new service was expected to be up and running by June 2011 with a doctor and paramedic on standby around the clock to respond to emergency calls. The government would call for tenders this year for the lease of a large twin-engine ambulance helicopter with capacity to reach all parts of the state, in addition to a pilot, second aircrew member, emergency doctor, and paramedic, it could transport up to two intensive care patients. The helicopter service would be based in Hobart. From England, Kent Air Ambulance is celebrating 20 years of its pioneering and life-saving work. Since it was launched in November 1989, the Flying Ambulance has attended 14,000 incidents, averaging two to three missions a day and saving hundreds of lives. Pilots, doctors, and paramedics will be on hand at the AGM at Westerham Golf Club to talk about their vital work. Kent was the third county to launch its own air ambulance after its founder, Kate Shivers, was inspired by the progress of London and Cornwall. Initially, the health authority underwrote the cost of the service. Then in 1990, the air ambulance was launched and later a lottery that raised 200,000 pounds a year to help keep the crew flying. Now almost all of the 1.7 million pounds a year needed to run the air ambulance comes from public donation. This covers everything, including paramedics, fuel, training, equipment, and medication. A big congratulations to Kent Air Ambulance for reaching this milestone. Mountain Life Flight, serving northeastern California, unveiled their newest aircraft, an A-Star 350B3 helicopter, on February 7th. The helicopter is available for 911 scene calls and interfacility transports and is being based at the Susanville Municipal Airport. Mountain Life Flight continues to provide fixed-wing airplane service for interfacility transports, both short and long distance. Both services provide critical care transport staffed with a flight nurse and a flight paramedic. The medical interior of the new aircraft is by LifePort Interiors based in Washington and incorporates the patient transport system into the aircraft with a specialized medical seating, medical equipment mounting, and a biohazard resistant sealed floor. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Day on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. Last week, I changed the way the Twitter feed is being incorporated into the Facebook page through a new RSS tool, so now both feeds are very similar. In the past, I put out more information on Twitter than Facebook. Things have worked out quite well with the new RSS tool, 
so I will probably delete the other feed on the RSS slash blog tab sometime soon. Today I am interviewing Mr. Howard Ragsdale, President, and Mr. Christopher Eastley, Managing Director of the Air Medical Operators Association. Howard Ragsdale is the Vice President of Business Development at Air Methods Corporation, located in Englewood, Colorado. Besides serving as the current President of the Air Medical Operators Association, he serves on the Board of Managers of the Center for Medical Transport Research and is the Industry Representative to the Board of Directors for the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems. After attending Southeastern Christian College and Eastern Kentucky University, Howard joined the U.S. Army in 1970 and in, remained on active duty until 1978. He is a commercial-rated instrument pilot in both fixed and rotor-wing aircraft and has served in various positions in the air medical industry to include line pilot, director of operations, and now business development. Howard is known for his innovative leadership in both traditional and community-based services and his unwavering commitment to quality. He lives with his wife, Terry, who is an EMS manager for American Eurocopter and is currently in transition from Phoenix, Arizona to their new home in Parker, Colorado. Howard and Terry have a combined family of four grown children with five grandchildren. Christopher Eastley is the Managing Director for the Air Medical Operators Association. His role is to help formulate policy on behalf of the members and provide association representation to various government agencies, the United States Congress, and other trade associations and policy groups. Previous to his current position, Chris served as the Government Relations Manager with the Association of Air Medical Services, where he was the liaison to the Government Relations and Safety Committees. Through this service, he became familiar with numerous issues and spent much of his time on matters of aviation regulation and safety. Chris began his government relations work at the Jen Corelli Group, the government relations firm that represents, among others, the Association of Aeromedical Services. He was involved with numerous subject areas, including healthcare, insurance, homeland security, and national defense. During this time, Chris also gained extensive experience working with both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Chris is a graduate of the International Studies School at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, where he studied social and political issues from both a domestic and international perspective. He lives with his wife, Tara, in Alexandria, Virginia, where they enjoy hiking, reading, music, and cooking together. Welcome, Howard and Chris. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity, Ed. Uh... I've been sort of eager for today to come about, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. That's great to have you. Well, Howard, let's let's talk about the the history of AMOA. When and why was it formed, and and who really was behind all this? I know you officially started, you know, February two thousand nine, but there was a lot going on before that time. Yeah, actually, the roots of our organization goes back to uh, uh, about two thousand. Russ Bray and some of the other leaders of the industry at that time recognized that the uh, operators needed to come together, and, and he put together and, and, and uh, 
organized what was called the uh, EMS Executive Forum. And uh, actually, as long as Russ was involved, that forum uh, was meeting regularly and uh, uh, I think was making some great strides on, on looking at issues that operators should be involved in. Uh, but through uh, change, uh, Russ uh, leaving the industry and going to Turbomeca, uh, you know, some change elsewhere. And the lack, I think, of a formal uh, mission statement and commitment uh, from all the operators, uh, although it continued to meet for the next six, seven years, uh, it was actually the summer of 2008. Uh, for me, it was after an accident in Texas really just created a great deal of frustration I think the uh, midair in, in Arizona was sort of the exclamation point of, of what's going on. And several of us started a, a phone dialogue that uh, ended up in a meeting at the AMTC in Minneapolis in 2008. Uh, us coming together uh, at that time, I believe there was uh, eight or nine operators at that meeting, and determining that we need to make the uh, executive forum uh, uh, more formal, and to give it a charter, to give it a, uh, a support financially and using our combined assets and knowledge. Uh, and so we started to work immediately on organizing our association. Uh, Mike Stanberry's lawyer kicked in to help out. Uh, Air Methods provided some legal support. Uh, PHI, at that time I was working for them, they uh, allowed me to get involved. Uh, a host of others, and uh, uh, anyhow, uh, we were able to then formalize the association in February of 2009. Mm -hmm. What were I, I having been the Ames president for the two years? I you know attended the CEO forums, and that just met once a year, right at AMTC, or was there other uh, meetings? Well, there were other meetings. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I only attended a couple myself. Uh, uh, my position at PHI allowed me to uh, sit in on uh, the meeting. So there was a meeting in Washington, D.C. that I attended uh, that was not related to an Ames meeting. HAI would often have an opportunity for some informal gatherings, if not a formal meeting, and then obviously the uh, AMTC conference. And were the issues then, Howard, different than today, I mean, with some of the core things that you talked about in the CEO forum and what you talk about today in AMOA? You know, uh, interesting question, because I've been trying to think about that. I, I, I don't believe that the vision today is that much different than what Russ Bray established uh, when he was uh, president and CEO of Rocky Mountain Helicopters. And I don't believe that, at least for the uh, short involvement that I had directly with the uh, forum before we went to an association. I don't believe there's been any significant change. As far as the philosophy, I, I believe the biggest change now is that, you know, hiring Chris as a director, uh, making a commitment to uh, fund our safety programs and our safety committee, and making a commitment to support our operations and maintenance managers uh, is the big difference. Uh, we're really embracing and accepting uh, our responsibility as certificate holders uh, to everything we can to enhance aviation safety. Mm -hmm. And that took a lot of 
you know, really coming together. I mean, a lot of the big operators are competitive competitors in, in markets. Uh, uh, you had to share some data from a safety yeah. perspective. It, 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 it's, it's been interesting, Ed, as this has unfolded, because, you know, I, I've held several different positions from lane pilot to director of operations uh, to, you know, being the director of a, a large air medical organization. And historically, uh, dating all the way back to probably the third program that ever went into service, one of the things that operators have been measured on as individuals has been their own personal safety record. And oftentimes it didn't make a whole lot of sense. If you'd flown 10,000 hours a, a month, uh, you were being judged against maybe a, a, a new entry into the market or a local operator that may not even fly 10,000 hours a year. So the safety record, your safety programs, and things like that were uh, a major part of the RP process that we went through uh, in the development in the you know the as this matured this industry. So operators tended to. Uh, maintain some secrecy uh, within their organizations on what they were doing to enhance safety. Um, I believe the group of operators that are currently participating, and there's 10 of us right now, I believe, involved in the uh, AMOA, have recognized the foolishness of that approach. And while we still have our own initiatives to try to raise the bar, Collectively, as a group of operators, we are accepting a responsibility, sharing best practices. Uh, we'll be talking significantly uh, uh, this weekend at HAI about some things that our safety committee uh, will be have been recommending that they've learned from their interactions uh, collectively that's pulling a little bit from one company, a little bit from this company, and, and hopefully influencing some positive change mm -hmm. for all of us. Yeah. That's good. Because, and if I could, yeah, go I'm ahead, sorry. Chris. If I could, you see, um, you know, we saw in 2008, and as I, as I looked at this in my role at Ames, um, you know, the uh, really, you know, some very tragic results um, uh, on, on the accident record, and 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 I think that provided a, a, a great amount of impetus for the CEOs to take a look at this, um, you know, far more from an organizational perspective. And one of the things that I think uh, drove this sort of new approach to uh, the sharing of best practices was the fact that numerous um, relatively new safety enhancements uh, were taking shape among the various operations. You had operational control centers or enhanced operational control centers. Um, uh, risk assessment procedures have been going on for quite some time. Uh, safety management systems, and as we get into FOQA and NVG and some of the more te you know, mm -hmm. enhanced technologies across the fleet, um, you know, these things have been uh, around in the airlines and the Part 121 community for a very long time, and they've become very standardized, um, and they've become, in some cases, um, you know, government programs. If you look at uh, some of these, um, some of these larger, uh, uh, I'm sorry, some of these larger initiatives. Um, and what we've found just in the uh, year that we've been, uh, you know, meeting w among the Aviation Safety Committee and among the uh, CEO, you know, the, the sort of board or executive level of the AMOA is that there is 
ample um, opportunity now to share the best practices and to standardize some of these things and to really put some more academic um, uh, uh, initiatives behind a lot of the safety, uh, uh, safety enhancements that we've made. What were some of the aha moments, because you are sharing data, were there any over some safety things that you might not have seen if you weren't sharing? You know, uh, that's that's an interesting question to ask and, and somewhat difficult to answer. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the biggest aha there is out there is uh, that the accidents uh, – in fact, I think we just had uh, as an industry one in, in, in Texas here recently, it, it, the causes and the circumstances are, are not that different from what we experienced in in, in the 1980s. Um, so the, some of the focus on technology, uh, our night vision goggles going to solve every problem we have? Absolutely not. I think... Uh, Jonathan Godfrey has really done a nice job of trying to uh, bring about a, a recognition in this industry that we can have the best helicopters. Uh, we've, we've, we've experienced uh, accidents in just about every model of aircraft that there is out there. Uh, we can have some of the best crews, but if there's a lapse uh, at the crew level, if there's a breakdown in the safety culture, uh, it will jump out and hurt you every single time. So while we're focused on technology and, and other things, uh, Ed, we can't forget that working on our overall culture is as critical as anything that we're doing, and that includes training and enhancing uh, our interaction with uh, pilots and, and the clinical crew members uh, uh, on a more frequent basis maybe than what we have in the past. Yeah. So safety management systems? Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue. Um, I, I do want to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of the association, but since we're on safety, Chris, why don't you talk about some of the specific things that the association is doing um, in the name of safety? Um, uh, thanks for that. We, we had a uh, – our Aviation Safety Committee has been meeting quarterly, and it, it, there's uh, – I, I think there have been several attempts and maybe stops and starts on um, uh, safety committees very similar to this. Um, but this is unique in the fact uh, – and one of the things that makes AMOA very unique is that this is a top-down approach uh, to safety, whereas some other things, um, you know, maybe some of the other initiatives uh, have been – bottom up or, um, you know, have kind of been a more of a, a, a voluntary effort. So the, the Aviation Safety Committee um, is, is, is unique in that not only are you, uh, you know, the, the individuals um, that are participating um, have as sort of part of their position at, at their own companies as safety directors or uh, operations directors or, or, or chief pilots, um, you know, sort of the safety responsible party within the company. Um, you know, part of his responsibility or her responsibility is, is participation in this community and, and or this committee and sharing those um, 
those best practices or those uh, procedures that, that, that they've been involved with uh, either creating or, or, or uh, inputting into their, into their system. Um, and what we found, and I, I would say that an aha moment for us is the lack of standardization and the, and the lack of, you know, you sort of use the term academic safety principles uh, that have been applied to some of these uh, procedures. Um, you know, maybe lacking in some areas, and you don't really know that until you've compared it to, to somebody else's. Um, and three of the big initiatives that have come out of our most recent meeting um, has been the, um, the possibility of standardization of risk assessment procedures. And not to say that you're applying the same level of risk in every operation, in every environment, but just the structure of a risk assessment. Um, uh, you know, need some standardization mm -hmm. so that we can uh, look at a an even level of or or what does the risk of a mountainous area mean to a certain operation? What's the definition of a mountainous area, and how is that risk being applied, and how is it being analyzed um, in not just your operation but across the operating area to the numerous other uh, companies or programs that may be there? So we're looking at standardization of risk assessments, um, and and how can we use a uh, a single method or a single approach to analyzing and assessing risk. So almost um, like a checklist, Chris, because then if you're in, you know, a, in the plain states and you don't have mountains, you don't have to use those particular boxes, but something, a good template for, for everybody to follow. Right. Yeah. right. It's, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say, Ed, where it really helps out is, uh, let's say you and I, uh, because we've both been in, uh, you know, the Missouri area, we could probably put together a pretty good risk assessment for an operation out of St. Joe if we, we put our head down and, and thought about it. Mm -hmm. At the same token, if you and I decide to bid on a contract uh, flying, uh, you know, out of one of the coastal states or maybe in the mountains, we'd be going into an area that, uh, that collectively our experience might not uh, uh, give us everything we need in our risk assessments. Uh, to be able to support an aviation operation there. Well, now, as, as our safety team comes together, we, collectively we have so much experience, we've challenged each other's risk assessment processes and, and added some I's and T's to cross that I think has enhanced uh, everyone and hopefully will be a positive influence on the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. It's um, you know you, you mentioned a checklist, Ed, and and you put ten operators in a room and you ask for the risk assessment checklist, and there's ten different checklists. <laughs> right. um, and and there's obviously going to be some differences between operator and operator, and some differences between areas of operation. That's expected. Um, but the differences between how we analyze, how we assess, and how we apply those risk assessments to our operations. Um, could use some standardization, yeah. and so that's what that's one of the um, you know very first issues that that we're going after, um, and and very closely related to that is um, the uh, the application of safety management systems to um, air medical services and, and air medical operation, and uh, the FAA 
uh, in partnership with the international community, has made uh, and produced a lot of guidance material on safety management systems. And you know, just the way you can sit down with 10 operators and ask them what their risk assessment is, uh, you can sit down with, with 10 operators and, and ask them what their safety management systems look like. You get a lot of similarities, um, and you get a lot of differences as well. And so in addition to participation in a, uh, you know, sort of risk assessment standardization, uh, we'll also be looking at um, some standardization of, of safety management systems and, the, and those procedures. Um, and we have uh, a couple of operators now that are participating in the uh, FAA safety management system pilot program. And we look to expand that um, and, and possibly make inclusion in that program um, uh, you know, sort of more standard across the AMOA membership uh, because these are, again, relatively new concepts. And uh, uh, what we found, well, one of the great things is, um, and, and each individual operator sort of volunteers to host our relatively small group uh, for our day and a half meetings. And that has led to uh, some fantastic aha moments among the uh, you know, individuals participating because you get to go see um, you know, the other companies, uh, Enhanced Operation or, or, or Operational Control Center. You get to see where they're doing uh, uh, completions or maintenance. And you get to see uh, you know, the application real time of some of their um, safety management or risk assessment procedures. So just in that quarter interaction, um, we've not only identified the need to standardize some of these things, but we've also, you know, found the, that some of the folks can take these home, you know, whether it be a very large operator or a very small operator, can take these concepts home and apply them uh, to, their, to their own operation. And just in the year since we've started this, um, and we'll be coming up on our fourth meeting next quarter, uh, so it hasn't even been a year yet, we've seen a lot of new faces in the room, um, you know, uh, corporations or companies and, and operators hiring, uh, you know, uh, positions that are directed towards safety and safety management. And a lot of these folks come from, um, you know, within our own community and, and come from the airline community and, and the military community um, with some very new perspectives on safety. Hmm. And the third project is a uh, really focused look at aviation standards that are out there in the air medical community. Uh, CAMES is a, a fantastic organization. They've done a, a lot of good things uh, to to standardize, um, you know, numerous concepts across the board. But uh, we, we sort of took on the uh, project of taking the aviation standards out of CAMES and really analyzing those and, and putting some specificity on some very general areas. And what we found was um, that there's uh, – I think the document we were dealing with was 75 pages long, and we, when we took down the, the, the extraction of anything that could be possibly related to aviation or aviation safety, we had – 45 or 55 pages left. So there's a lot that's in there that can impact aviation safety. Um, we also know that HAI is, is looking at their own accreditation and standardization process for for uh, helicopter aviation. Um, and what, we, what, what our mission is, is to apply a more focused uh, uh, aviation standard, aviation safety standard, and a more specific aviation standard um, uh, to, 
two helicopter and, and really all in fixed wing, uh, you know, really all aviation and air medical transport, uh, and raise the bar generally, um, you know, throughout uh, throughout the community. Whether it's the HAI standard and their specific um, standards for for the EMS mission, or whether it's CAME standards that are, that are more specific to to aviation. Um, so that's an ongoing and frankly our largest project, I think, uh, that, that, that will probably be ongoing for the, uh, you know, for the entirety of the, of the AMOA's future. Mm-hmm. Chris, talk a little bit. I know one of the things that you had on the website was training, too. What specifically are you doing uh, in that area for safety? Um, again, it's more of a look at uh, or a sharing of, of best safety practices. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen uh, among operators is a lot of internalization with uh, simulator devices. Um, mm. And there's a, uh, you know, the use of simulators has greatly increased. There's been a lot of new products on the market from flight safety and from their partnerships with uh, many of our own members uh, and the manufacturers um, to develop new simulator projects. Um, and again, that's you know something that's it's a relatively new concept in in uh, helicopter EMS. This idea that there'd be a wide array of, of simulators available in in the uh, exact aircraft type or the exact uh, uh, instrument configuration type inside the aircraft. Um, so we've been sharing, uh, and you can see on the website in the safety statement, the commitment that, that we've made. You know, there are comparable options for for training, but but uh, again, it's it's more of a standardization of how often, the frequency of training, uh, and the type of training, and you know, are you using simulators or, or real-time aircraft, and and what are the individual procedures or or risks that you're training to. Um, uh, that that we're trying to standardize, and and in general, and Howard, you'd probably be the best to answer this. I know in the past it was always very difficult to to get a simulator, especially if it was not a, a U.S. built ship, and even if it was, then getting access to it. Now things have changed, and I know your own company, our methods, has just purchased three, I believe, uh, simulators, two to go on the road. Um, how has the use of simulators increased over the last several years? Well, flight safety has led the way. I will give right. them credit for that. You know, uh, one of my uh, criticisms of flight safety though, over the years is, you know, the companies need to have the opportunity to interact with their pilots and, uh, you know, maintenance now is also being outsourced to the training with some companies. So, when you outsource that training and you can't have your own check airmen involved, uh, then you lose some of that contact, some of that uh, interaction with uh, a line pilot. And and with uh, the air medical industry being such that, you know, uh, our pilots uh, oftentimes feel as though they work more for the hospitals than they do the operators, you, you really need to... Uh, to uh, have that personal contact so that they're they're picking up on your safety culture, they're picking up on on your standards, and, and it's not being overly influenced uh, maybe by an outside source. That said, flight safety has definitely demonstrated that the simulator has a, a great role in in the education and training of our pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Technology has caught up finally to the point where operators and their methods uh, have elected to go to three simulators, one of which will be a fixed base, the EC-135, two of which will be mobile, 
so that we can set them up uh, at, at you know remote sites. Um, but you know, PHI is used simulation. I think uh, right now probably the vast majority, if not all of our uh, members, are using simulation in some form or the other. Cost, technology, recognition of the importance of the tool, uh, improved uh, interactions with those that we do outsource to, such as flight safety. Uh, um, you know, uh, Terry, there at flight safety, she's done an excellent job of, uh, of interacting with the operators and working with flight safety to uh, make changes to their program so that they better support our needs. But um, yeah, and you're also seeing operators uh, support the utilization of clinical simulators now because they can play a role by, by putting together some scenario-based trainings in which you couple that with a, a flight training device, a clinical training device, and you can really do some excellent things with crew training. Right. Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Airback Life Team and have seen their simulator, and now they've added the, the clinical onto that so they can have you know, to, you know, the clinical scenario going along with the aviation scenario and see how they, the crews interact because you rely on each other. So a, a great tool and it can really bring into play, uh, you know, the importance of maintaining a, a sterile environment during landing and takeoff, yes. which many of our accidents yes. have taken place during or shortly after takeoff. Uh, and, and it can also bring an awareness to, uh, the pilot who may or may not have visual contact with what's going on in these aircraft, that the crew is actually doing this, and, and I need to uh, stay out of their way as well. Right. Well, I've just got one other safety kind of question. It's It's been a thing that I, I guess has stuck with me as I've, I've gone from different programs to different programs, is when you bring in a pilot, uh, a yes. lot of times the air medical environment is so different than a corporate environment, an offshore environment, uh, you know, even a military environment. Are, are the, is the association through the, the, these safety initiatives sort of recognizing what the uniqueness of the air medical, and it's not just the hard things, you know, it's some of the soft things that you were talking about, that interaction with the you know, the medical crew, which is very different and, you know, their role as a team member? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, and, and I'm, I want to be careful because many of the members, you know, have uh, uh, offshore operations or are involved maybe in, in non-EMS operations. Uh, but at the same token, I, I believe that the challenges of being an EMS pilot and, uh, uh, you know, I've, it's been since 1987, but I've, I've actually, you know, worked as an EMS pilot. Mm -hmm. Is significantly different than uh, flying for oil and gas company, which I also I'm both in airplanes and helicopters. So it's it, it's a different environment, and our training programs have to uh, address those issues. And maybe we failed at that, uh, and that's one of the reasons we're seeing a repeat of the same type of events that have taken place, uh, you know, the same type of errors that have taken place over the past several years. Um, you, you can see often, I think, in which uh, crew members become too comfortable with one another. Yeah. So we, we tend to become uh, complacent. Uh, I think negative press and some of the things that are going on in our industry creates apathy, which is definitely a, a concern. Uh, 
Uh, so instilling pride back into what we do and professionalism is very critical. And I think the operators are recognizing that, uh, you know, it, it, this is a, uh, uh, well, simulation and flight training and all these things are important. This is a people process. Uh, and Air Medical is presenting a, a very unique uh, people challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, we need experience. Yeah, we need, uh, you know, the skill sets that, that the young bring sometimes, the vision that they bring to make us better. Um, and, and we need, uh, uh, you know, to develop a method in which we're continually reinforcing a safety message. And, again, efforts like Jonathan Goffrey and Ames with Vision Zero, I think, are as critical in some cases as to what we're trying to do as well. Yeah. And, and I, my question wasn't that, you know, one is, I, I think they're all different. I mean, I think it'd take yeah. hard, you know, if you took a, someone just working in aeromedical and put them into a, you know, Iraq or, or even on an offshore mission, it, they're just unique and, and recognizing what those uh, differences are. Also. Well, let me uh, ask uh, just some, I, I want to get into some legislative um, initiatives that you're working on, but uh, Chris, can you just tell us maybe just some basic stuff? You know, what is the mission and vision of AMOA? Sure. Ed. The um, the mission statement here is to ensure the provision to our customers and the communities we serve uh, of safe and successful air medical transportation. Um, and, and I think that mission statement goes beyond, uh, you know, simply, um, uh, you know, do you have a PAR 135 uh, certificate and, and are you transporting patients? You know, do you have the, the A021 ops back you know, to, to, to transport patients? But it also assures... Um, uh, or, or ensures that we are participating, um, you know, as a as a group of operators in the sharing of best practices and in the promotion um, of, of of that of that higher quality standard um, in, in aviation safety. Okay, and then what about the the core values then? Um, our core values are relatively long, but uh, I'll go over sort of the. Uh, uh, the overview piece is unprecedented and sustainable safety. Um, so, you know, not only are we uh, making or breaking the ground in the areas of, uh, you know, of the enhancement of safety, but we're sustaining those. Uh, this is not just paying lip service to, to procedures or policies or new technologies, but but the sustaining of of, of those um, uh, and the awareness um, of of new new procedures, principled industry leadership. Um, Especially in the uh, in, in the realm of aviation and aviation safety, and beyond compliance, um, so that there's uh, that we'll be, you know, moving beyond uh, what uh, simply complying with the rules to a higher standard. And, and that's not to say that we're not a um, an organization that is uh, uh, actively advocating for. Enhanced regulations. We are. Uh, we, you know, we'll be definitely looking at the FAA's uh, aviation. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the the FAA's uh, upcoming rulemaking for HEMS and for air medical transport, um, and definitely applying a higher standard to to those rules. Um, you know, the idea that uh, that you'd be that there's a there's a a legal safe and then an enhanced safe is something that we're definitely uh, and actively addressing. Mm -hmm. that, that 
that legal is safe, um, uh, and and that uh, uh, you know that that will translate into a um, safety assurance. Okay, and and I want to get into some of the specific uh, pieces of that, but I had one more question on some of the structure, and that's to to you, Howard. I, I know you're serving as president. Uh, I guess how did you get elected into that position. How big is the board of directors, and is there an executive committee? I guess how is that structured? You know, being a small group, as far as uh, even though we represent, uh, uh, you know, a significant number of aircraft in in, in the industry, um, it, everyone is involved. Uh, I, I sometimes uh, we have an executive group. I'm the president. Uh, Mike Stanberry is the vice president. Uh, Seth Myers is the treasurer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred Betrell is the secretary. Um, we will be uh, reviewing and uh, electing new officers and leadership uh, uh, this Sunday and, and at the HAI. But at the same token, if you were to look at our correspondence, you'll see that uh, everyone from the smallest and largest is involved in our decision-making and uh, involved in our direction. So while the executive committee and, and the directors uh, uh, are one of the same and, and, and play a big role in the leadership, the reality of it is our membership has such a strong voice that whether it's uh, Joe Cook at uh, you know, California Shock Trauma or, or Ray Biafine at, at Dallas Care Flight, uh, uh, we're all playing a role in this. And, one of the things I really enjoy is Seven Bar Aviation out of Dallas. Uh, I think they have a total of about 12 airplanes somewhere in that neighborhood, zero helicopters. Uh, and, of course, a lot of the focus from the accidents has been uh, on helicopter accidents in the past few years. Seven Bar recognized the importance of getting involved with us because Air Methods, PHI, I think Metro, uh, uh, Omni, all operate uh, some airplanes as well, so they've really become a, a very active member. Uh, maybe one of the only one that's attended every single meeting. Uh, a very active member, and and are starting to develop a, a, a you know a look strictly at the uh, fixed wing operations. So I'm excited about their involvement. Yeah, is um, and to be a member, you have to have a Part 135 certificate. Is that correct? At this time, that's the only requirement. We're we're and involved. Uh, you have to have the uh, you know the op specs that that uh, qualify you as an air medical operator. Yes, right. The, okay. the, uh, I'm we, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Uh, new members are also currently required to uh, be approved by the board, um, and and again, it goes. It speaks to the safety commitments um, that we as members of AMOA have made, uh, uh, and and uh, you know those those commitments are in the area of. Uh, uh, technologies, be it NVGs, HTAWs, or, or, or IFR operations, uh, training, uh, safety management, and um, uh, you know data collection and analysis. And so, um, you know, while we don't have specific uh, standards, we are applying those to our work in in in, in the standardization areas at the games and and, and HAI, um, and, and as as we develop those. Um, but it's also a uh, uh, you know, it's it's a process of a commitment to to safety enhancements that the uh, uh, is up to the board. 
So it's and so Ed, it's, yeah. if ahead. I could, you know, the the people that can the operators that can benefit the most from this right now uh, are not just the large operators, uh, which for the most part, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Everyone in this organization right now is operating multiple aircraft. I think uh, Dallas Care Flight may be the smallest member as far as helicopter ops go. But the, our 2010 and beyond initiatives need to be attracting some of these smaller operators that, that don't have the depth uh, of knowledge and, and experience that the larger operators have, maybe do not have the depth in their safety departments, et cetera. Those individuals and those companies uh, that may be serving a, a very critical role to their community uh, should not be ignored, and we should be pulling those companies into our organization. And I believe that by sharing with them, they could elevate their programs and maybe benefit the most uh, from our uh, from our efforts. So to summarize, basically, you have to have the Part 135 certificate, ops specs, and air medical. But, Howard, if if a small operator comes and maybe doesn't have everything that Chris said in place as far as safety but had the commitment to that, then they would be considered? Yeah, and I think that's what Chris was saying. Okay. You know, it's a commitment to – we recognize okay. that there's some people out there, and in our own members, we've said, oh, gosh, maybe I should be doing that. Uh, but – that there are people out there that don't have there's organizations that don't have all the assets maybe of an air methods or or an omni flight, but they have a commitment to doing the job right and and those companies those organizations uh, would be embraced by our organization and our association. Okay, and then is uh, so there's not a place for if someone wanted to just be like a friend of the association or an affiliate member or an individual member. Right now, it's just the operators. Chris, you might go uh, through some of our efforts on that. Yeah, we're we're the 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 current membership category is sort of regular members, but uh, um, we have uh, uh, you know done some outreach and, and trying to get some folks involved uh, from an affiliate uh, or. Um, uh, I, th I think the, the term we discussed was an affiliate member category, and um, uh, you know we, we continue those efforts. I think uh, uh, we'll we'll be uh, certainly looking at uh, uh, you know uh, a, a a larger or more broad participation as we move forward on some of our earlier initiatives. Um, we're also all AIMS members, and we're all HAI members, um, uh, uh, you know, from the individual company perspective. So um, the participation in the AMOA does not diminish participation in the larger groups, be it the larger helicopter community or the larger air medical community. Um, so there's also, you know, ample opportunity to become engaged and involved um, in the good work that uh, that our are related or associated or affiliated organizations are, are involved in. Yeah, and is the uh, uh, one yeah. final is the the dues structure based on the size of the organization? It is. It's based on the number of aircraft. Yeah. I see. Right. Okay. Uh, the original group uh, put in uh, maybe a, a bit more and weren't quite as concerned about that. In fact, most of our members aren't concerned about that aspect of it. But it is based on the number of aircraft. And you know, as we look at affiliates or associates. And I, I think it's very critical in this industry to recognize that the entire industry has felt some financial stress. Uh, uh, maybe our manufacturers and, and 
support services more than the operators and and some of the people that they've either sold their product to or or supported in the past. Ames is the voice for Air Medical, and, and I, I think to a member, everyone believes that. We may have issues on certain things, but this group is committed to, committed to supporting AIMS. We could put leverage on manufacturers, whether it be avionics or aircraft, to put money into our association for whatever reason. We've been hesitant to do that because AIMS is also going to those same companies uh, as some individual hospitals are to support their own initiatives. And there's only so many dollars yeah. there, and there's only so much that, that, you know, our manufacturers and others should be expected to support. Part of accepting the responsibility to enhance safety is to make a financial commitment to make us getting there, and that's what the operators are doing. Okay. That's a good point. Well, let's move into some of the legislation Um Chris, you had touched a little bit on the FAA reauthorization bill. Why don't you talk about that and what AMOA is working on? I know you have on the website several uh, papers. Certainly. The uh, the FAA reauthorization process has been uh, extremely uh, long, <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah. um, and and there, there have been, uh, there's been significant interest in both chambers, be it the House and the Senate, in air medical services and aviation safety. And, uh, you know, rightly so. I, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, the attention that, that this community has garnered from the NTSB, from Congress, from the FAA um, is, is unwarranted. Uh, the uh, um, the legislation originally was directed, um, I think, a lot more generally um, in, in some of the first iterations of, of the FAA reauthorization bills in past Congresses. Um, but through an education process and through the uh, engagement of staff and, and offices, um, uh, that's, that's that's been done by uh, you know by Ames and by HAI and, and, and now by the AMOA um, has led to. Uh, you know that education process has led to an excellent um section uh, i believe in the faa reauthorization the most recent house passed faa reauthorization bill hr 915 um you know, and part of that process was a hearing on on air medical services on and on air medical issues uh, that took place in april of last year um the bill contains uh, three sections, and, and the first section is really directed towards Section 313, uh, which is really directed towards informing the FAA um, and putting them on some timeline to address some issues that have been recommended by the NTSB and that are currently ongoing in the, in the air medical community um, uh, of aviation safety you know, through regulation. So it's sort of a roadmap um, or a direction for, for aviation safety regulation that needs to be done by the FAA. Um, you know, the FAA regulates aviation safety and um, you know, needs to take up uh, uh, some some enhancements to that that are directed toward helicopter EMS. Um, last year at the NTSB hearings, John Allen, who's the uh, uh, head of flight standards there at FAA, uh, you know, made that commitment, and they have a, uh, a rulemaking coming out here uh, in May or June, or notice of proposed rulemaking that will uh, that will encompass a lot of the things that are in that first section of the FAA bill. The second section of interest, 314. 
calls for a study of, of, of night vision goggles and uh, mm. uh, the rules and training associated with night vision goggles in the community. Um, uh, the the enhancement of night vision goggle technology has really um, caused a, a great upswell uh, in, in the implementation of that technology around the fleet. And uh, despite the fact that uh, very tragically, you know, very recently, we've, we've had what is essentially our our first night vision goggle fatal accident uh, there in Texas, like I said, uh, you know, very tragically, um, there is a significant safety enhancement to um, applying these technologies to night operations. Uh, it's, it's not the only technology, uh, you know, that, that, that can be, uh, that can enhance safety um, in that environment, but it is uh, one that certainly the vast majority of our operators have, uh, uh, have, in, have employed. So uh, I think that the FAA, um, and, and you have to really give the uh, give the credit to the operators for leading the way on night vision goggle implementation, and in some cases, in some areas, um, you know, bring the FAA along uh, where it comes to you know safe operations with with the, with the NVGs and the regulation of those operations. Um, so I think a, a legislatively or a a, a mandated. Uh, uh, study of you know the, the FAA's current night vision goggle regulations and where those regulations could be enhanced um, you know to promote the the application of this technology uh, is warranted and uh, the final section is uh, would call on the GAO the general uh, I'm sorry the government accountability office uh, to do a study a wide-ranging study of, of air medical services um, and its relationship both to aviation and to medicine um, and the you know the uh, integration of those services and the uh, separation of federal versus state regulation um, to answer many of the questions that have been asked by both state EMS officials and, and by members of the air medical community um, uh, and, and by the Department of Transportation on um, you know where the uh, uh, the capabilities lie on and, and uh, you know both the regulation and a, and a longer look at the at the air medical community mm-hmm. let's move over uh, to the uh, uh, Patient Safety Act, or HR 978, or Senate 848, and uh, your position on those bills? Um, this legislation really takes a look at um, the the Airline Deregulation Act and the um, uh, sort of uh, you know division of regulatory responsibilities in in. Um, in, in air medical transport, um, you know, air, there's no denying that air medical transport is a relatively unique separation of, um, uh, you know, medical or, or 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 healthcare practice, and you know, aviation transportation, and those are two ex- very highly um, uh, regulated uh, 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 endeavors. Uh, you know, certainly the the provision of medical care very highly regulated at the state level, um, and the uh, the provision of, of of aviation transportation very highly regulated at the FAA. Um, I, I think that there has been, uh, you know, some frustration in the community that perhaps the, the aviation regulations uh, at the federal level are deficient. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, the, the, the state regulatory uh, uh, framework um, has been, uh, uh, you know, less than some folks have desired. Uh, I, I, the, the, the AMOA is very clearly uh, focused, and we've very clearly stated on, on numerous occasions that, you know, the uh, enhancement 
of federal aviation regulations is something that we certainly support, and where necessary, the enhancement of state regulations um, uh, of a medical nature um, is, is something that, that we can support, and those are processes that we that we as a uh, you know as an organization and, and as a group of members um, want to maintain active involvement and in, certainly from the aviation perspective um, however the particular bills um, would blur the line I think a, a little bit more uh, you know further than than what has been uh, the, 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 the numerous uh, decisions that have come down from DOT and the numerous court cases that uh, I say numerous, uh, it's a handful, but um, there there are uh, there are very clear lines drawn and very clear definitions made, and it's not to say that things uh, shouldn't be regulated. Certainly, where you have aviation issues that that need to be regulated, that you know that that, that needs to take place at the FAA, and where you have uh, medical issues that need to be regulated, that needs to take place at the state level. Um, but the uh, you know the sort of um, mixing of state authority and aviation uh, regulations uh, could have some unintended consequences, um, and and that's a uh, uh, significant issue for uh, safe and, and, and effective operation and, and, and regulation. What, what would be some of those unintended consequences? Um, certainly, state's ability to uh, require uh, items of an uh, of an of an aviation nature or require procedures of an aviation nature. Um, it's not to say that those things should not be required, um, but there are innumerable specificities in those requirements um, that have uh, that have an impact. The requirement of uh, IFR capability or IFR operation, for example, is a, an extremely specific um, uh, regulation, and it's something that can greatly limit the operation of an air medical service, the safe operation of an air medical service, um, depending on the infrastructure that is available to, um, you know, proceed uh, with those with those regulations. Mm-hmm. That's something that's a, um, you know, helicopter operations and helicopter IFR operations are something that's um, very complicated and, and not a lot of folks at FAA uh, even, um, you know, understand the, the complexities there. However, um, uh, you know, that it's even more difficult or problematic to apply those um, from the state level. And, uh, you know, we also see issues of state-to-state operations. The entire reason for uh, operating an air medical service is to increase the um, available range of, of, of critical care, um, you know, both in uh, critical care transport and critical care delivery. You know, we're, we're also delivering a higher level of care faster and, and in a longer distance, um, you know, getting those crews uh, to the site. So it's not only taking the patient to uh, the appropriate facility, but also delivering the appropriate level of care to the patient uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a faster and more timely manner. Um, and there are, you know, innumerable state barriers uh, in some in some areas. And I live here in in D.C. And um, the operators uh, or the programs that are here regularly operate between uh, three and four. Or, three and four state borders and and one federal district um that those cross-border operations are are not always uniform 
the the licensure requirements are not always uniform. Mm-hmm. The, um, uh, the the medical requirements are not always uniform. The federal aviation safety requirements are. Um, and I, I, again, I, I I don't believe that anyone could argue that uh, those don't need to be enhanced. And like I said, and like I've repeated several times, we're we're very uh, uh, committed to that enhancement of those regulations. Um, but the application of a single safety standard uh, is is what makes the American or the uh, U.S. aviation community one of the safest in the world. Not, I mean, uh, you know, the, the the broader aviation safety community. But, uh, you know, it's, it's Axe's assertion that passing the legislation would actually make it easier because you'd have some standardization uh, around what you just talked about, the differences in, in state regulation, especially over the medical piece of that. And, and it, it's an interesting assertion, and I, I don't think that the you know uniform application of medical requirements, the uniform application of um, uh, training requirements for nurses and paramedics, not just across state lines, but across county lines in areas like California and, and Florida, and, and some of the um, uh, some of the states that that have divided this up even further into you know individual counties or municipalities. Um, I, I can't imagine that you know. Again, uh, not discussing the specificities, but the, the the broader concept of of uniformity in those medical regulations is something that we would certainly be, uh, you know, um, we would certainly support uh, right. the ability to cross those state lines. Um, is uh, absolutely something that uh, you know both enhances our ability to uh, transport patients, but also enhances the the, the patient's access to our services. Mm-hmm. And I think the fastest way to get something done right now, Ed, is to support Ames's efforts and 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 work with uh, the National Association of State EMS officials and, and see what we can do there to standardize guidelines because they are different from state to state, and and I don't believe that uh, you know just as well as we're watching the debates on healthcare and everything else be so complicated. Uh, I don't believe that the federal government is prepared to address this as uh, aggressively and, and, and to make – I mean, we could go on with stuff in the on the Hill for years, but I believe if we unite behind AIMS and support their initiatives, and I believe they do have talks ongoing right now with the, the state EMS officials, that – there's an opportunity to bring about change, and it's something that is uh, uh, that we can revisit and without having to go back to the Hill make changes to uh, as we mature and as we learn things. Uh, it can be implemented through a positive dialogue with the EMS officials. Right. Well, and I think another thing that's, you know, divided things here is, is the state's rights with um, Certificate of Need. In that that they can regulate, you know how many. Uh, and I, I've certainly you know been a hospital administrator or medical administrator in states that have CON. Uh, it, at, in North Carolina when I was there at Duke, um, and you know that sort of prompted a lot of uh, the action. Recently was the North Carolina case, but what is what is Amoa's position then? You know. When it comes to CON, when a state says, I want to be able to regulate the number of aircraft that are serving the state. You know, if, 
and I'm going to speak now for Howard because, you know, the ADA is, is an issue. Uh, so I'm going to be a little cautious on that. Uh, you know, with the exception of what went on in, in, in Missouri and, and some other places, the involvement that I personally have with the ADA has been to protect revenue, in which, uh, and there's been some very significant things that have gone on. CalSTAR, REACH, uh, PHI, Air Methods have all come together using the ADA to protect revenue that has benefited everybody in the state of California that, that transports. Uh, but, you know, the C of N has not worked for Air Medical Ed. And I think, what is there now, six states that actually have one that have tried to use it? And the reason it hasn't is because I think many states recognize that incumbents were using the C of N as inappropriately, maybe, as an ADA has ever been used. And that was to block competition or any expansion of services. Now, the negative side of, of that has been that in some states, not in all, but in some states there's probably been too many aircraft brought into it, and and maybe that's diluted the system. But I can tell you in the states that I've operated in, while there may be some financial stress created from competition, in fact, it's also made us work harder. We're, we're investing more, I believe, as an industry in in in, in support, some of them that we've talked about today, simulation, uh, things like that, to continue to improve our services. Uh, I, I, I think the competition's been healthy that way. The EC-145, the EC-135, uh, uh, you know, Bell working on the, the, uh, the, the their new aircraft, the 429, all those are a direct result of the fact that we finally have a footprint in this country in which manufacturers have tried to develop product uh, that are specific to our industry, and I think that's good. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out how the federal government is going to stop competition by eliminating the ADA, uh, you know, I'm personally opposed to that. Trying to come up with them by working through Ames and state EMS officials, the emergency physicians associations, and others. What we can do, as operators, maybe to uh, minimize the negative impacts in some areas of competition. I'm not a pro uh, opponent to that kind of thinking. It's just to believe we're going to get rid of the ADA and it's going to stop competition and make our industry better. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in recent meetings with state EMS officials and, and some of the other uh, concerned folks um, on these issues, uh, you know, these are the uh, legislation uh, to, to 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 change this this current framework. Um, I think is is not necessary to ensure the adequate policing of appropriate use of our medical services. It's not necessary to ensure um, the uh, the quality of of an air medical uh, service or an air medical operation. Um, you know, from from a clinical standpoint, or from a medical standpoint, or from an aviation safety standpoint. I, I think that the first step here um, has to be uh, an education process of what's of what the current capabilities are of the regulatory framework, um, and then and then addressing the uh, possibilities for um, either you know ex expanding those capabilities um, or addressing the uh, the issues within that framework, uh, and that I'm I'm 
I'm not confident that that has been done, that the dialogue has taken place, uh, and I'm optimistic that uh, once we've identified the appropriate ways with our partners in the state EMS officials uh, or, or the state uh, regulatory offices and in the federal regulatory offices, um, that, that we can address innumerable concerns um, about, uh, like I said, appropriate utilization or um, uh, the uh, uh, application of our medical services to certain areas. Um, you know, many of the participants that, 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 or many of the uh, 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 folks that we've spoken to in the last year in the process of, of discussing this legislation um, has talked about the reasons why CON procedures did not work in their state. And it was because it limited uh, to a great degree the ability of medical professionals and, and hospitals and, and physicians to appropriately apply uh, air, air medical services to their uh, to their area um, and it, it ended these you know many of these questions ended up being discussed at a a regulatory or legislative level at the state um, in which you know innumerable lawyers and, and, and lobbyists and various other folks uh, had to become involved I think that the most appropriate way to address this again is is to look at the current system the wide-ranging um, authorities that, that both state and federal officials have in the current system uh, and apply the knowledge and experience um, and expertise of uh, physicians and, and, and officials uh, uh, in those local areas to uh, develop for themselves both appropriate utilization and, and the appropriate number of, of, of aircraft. It, it's, it's a very difficult question, and I went through this with um, ACT, too, because the American healthcare system, the way it's set up, um, you know, we have for-profit, not-for-profit, not that's the only model, but, you know, how things are out there and it's really about reimbursement and and how you get paid uh, as opposed to uh, some European countries um, and how they have their resources set up. Um, you know, the other thing with CON, obviously, is you can say it limits competition. I'm sure that's part of it, but it's also, is there a more a rational way of putting resources out there rather than having it all, you know, in one area because that's where the reimbursement is versus really servicing the area? Because there's, as we all know, vast areas of the U.S. that don't have coverage of any kind, um, you know, unless it's fixed wing, you know. Can that, I think of a, yeah, go ahead. If I could hit on a couple of things, like, and, uh, you know, on the the coverage issue has really now come down to some pretty small areas in this country, uh, and I think compared to what it was, you know, two decades sure, ago. Sure, sure. So, so I, I, you know, I, I think people are looking at some areas in Idaho, maybe, and you know, northern Utah or something that that may not have comfort. But even with a state-funded program, or even if reimbursement was changed dramatically, you know, there's certain parts of Nevada that are just always going to have such limited uh, demographics and, and opportunity for transport that maybe are going to struggle with that. Um, east of the Mississippi, though, it's hard to find an area that you could say is underserved. Um, but. And, and I don't think that the reimbursement is what's going to drive this. I mean, obviously, uh, if if there was a reduction in the current rates that people are being paid, it would reduce the number of aircraft, but it would impact, uh, you know, 
for-profit uh, organizations uh, are just as concerned about revenue as not-for-profit. And, and I've really learned a lot from interacting with both uh, for-profit and not-for-profit not not operators in our association. Um, Air Flight, California Shock Trauma, Reach are all you know, not-for-profit. So the, the motivators are the same. I think the, the critical area is utilization reviews. Mm-hmm. And I think those companies that are investing right now and, and hospitals uh, need to be doing the same. Uh, but those standalone operations that are really putting together the detail and this is what we're doing, this is our utilization review, this is our outreach to educate the referring agencies, which is difficult to do sometimes, okay, Uh is is real critical to our long-term survivability. When we have Dr. Bledsoe and others, uh, and, and, and interesting, some of them are, are internal to our own organizations, uh, Ames and others, you know, attacking this utilization and making it such a big issue in the, in the public's mind, it impacts all of us. Uh, the reality the state should be able to look at, and there should be some transparency on utilization, and that in itself might drive some some changes. If utilizations and, and the transports are appropriate, then the accessibility and the uh, availability of this number of aircraft is appropriate in my And what I've always argued, Howard, is that utilization review needs to go both ways because, um, you know, I know the aeromedical community gets hammered uh, when there's a a transfer that probably should have gone by ground. But what about the other way around? You know, we don't always get those statistics. And and, and we're we're not willing to say that in a lot of states, especially ones with large rural communities, uh, farming communities, you know, some of these transports are system, you know, important, necessitated, as much as oftentimes maybe they are clinical or a combination of the two, because the counties can't afford to staff enough ambulances. Uh, the municipalities can't staff the clinicians. Oftentimes, they're volunteers even that can take long transports uh, to an appropriate level of care. Right. So the helicopters actually, even though there may be multiple in a state and some people are critical of them uh, being too many, are actually maybe lowering health care costs in some communities because uh, they're not uh, uh, having to send their assets out of the community they serve, uh, you know, as often as if if they didn't have access to the helicopter. The other thing that, you know, that I think, Everyone needs to be aware because pricing is is definitely an issue, whether you're not for profit or for profit. But everyone has the same problem these days. If you are transporting a significant number of patients that do not meet medical necessity, you're being challenged and you're not being paid. So it is in the best interest of all of us, in my opinion, that the patients we transport meet a criteria so that they are, in fact, uh, benefiting from the transports that we're giving them. Mm-hmm. 
Well, one one final question in this area, and I just had a few questions more on the association itself. But um, mm-hmm. in the uh, you know healthcare reform legislation, of course, that seems to be floundering of late. Uh, there was an uh, amendment proposed looking at CAMES, you know, accreditation. Uh, not actually not CAMES, but Medicare. Uh, accreditation uh, that would then possibly allow for a, a higher reimbursement level um, if you met certain criteria. Now, Howard, I know that might be a little difficult because you're on the CAMES board, but um, what's uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, and, you know, any opinion I put out on this won't be the CAMES opinion. Uh, I, I, there's some validity to those kinds of arguments. At the same token, who's going to set the standards for uh, reimbursement? Is is a 206 that no is serving a community that that no one else is willing to serve, uh, and and that's what the economy drives is that type of aircraft, and it's being conducted safely, which you know historically the 206 has been one of our safest aircraft. Does, does that deserve, if they're providing a, a quality level of care to a community that no one else uh, is willing to participate in, does that deserve a lesser reimbursement rate than someone is operating in on S-76 and wherever? Um, if, if an area is restricted by demographics or geography on the type aircraft that they can operate. And in some communities, you know, we're, we're finding it more and more difficult to put twins out that that can get into and, and give you access. Arizona and some of those places have almost gone exclusively to single engine aircraft because the, the climate, uh, you know, ate up the twin engines that we put out there or they couldn't reach some of the areas due to temperatures, et cetera, that, that we needed to get into. So do they deserve to be paid at a lesser rate than, uh, again, a state in in the Midwest maybe that, uh, uh, you know, a twin-engine, single-pilot IFR aircraft will work in all the time no matter what? Right. So defining what's going to be the differentiators and the reimbursement levels is is what I, I'm concerned about. And is anyone in CMS or wherever else capable of, of coming up with a set of standards that will fit all of us. I, I see that as a difficult task. Yep. Well, Chris, I just had a couple quick questions. Uh, if you could just tell our listeners about your website, I will have the link in the show notes, of course, but uh, just what resources they can get off your site. Certainly. The uh, website is www.airmedicaloperators.com. Um, uh, you can also reach it at uh, the .org variation. Um, there are, uh, obviously, there uh, our, our safety commitments are, are right there on the front page. Um, and so there's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, brief statement of our commitments, and it gets a little bit more specific when you see our uh, various position statements and then resources that were shared uh, uh, with the uh, NTSB in line of their hearings and, and with the uh, uh, House Transportation Infrastructure staff in line of their hearings, as well as um, our responses to questions and uh, an excellent statement that was made um, in coordination with Ames and HAI to the uh, National Transportation Safety Board before their hearings. Um, 
I think in addition to uh, a lot of the other factors that uh, uh, led to the formation of the AMOA, uh, the, the impending NTSB uh, hearings, the uh, four days of hearings that, that were pretty taxing on, on a lot of folks, um, uh, was just as much of an impetus as, as uh, you know, some of the other issues that, that we'd mentioned at the top of the call. Um, there is a, a members only section that uh, is currently not populated with anything. It was a uh, uh, sort of a resource for uh, sharing information and data uh, that, that never really got off the ground. So there's uh, uh, nothing to hide in there. Fortunately, all of our position statements and issues are, are right there uh, under that tab. Um, the EMOA website will be undergoing some very significant changes in the near future. Um, I'm currently looking at, at a couple of proposals to both enhance the design and, and the content uh, on the website, as well as the uh, connectivity with uh, you know, some of the other resources that are out there. We're also developing an online safety library uh, that includes not just uh, guidance from FAA, but from uh, uh, you know, various international sources, um, individual operators' uh, uh, pieces that, that, that they're uh, sharing with other operators, and um, a lot of the resources from the United States military and, and, and other mm. uh, you know, military organizations as well, that sort of a, a wide range of, of resources that um, we haven't tapped in, in some of the other uh, committees and groups I've been involved in. So uh, that'll be up there as well. Um, and, and we're looking far down the road um, at the possibility of, of making some of these more standardized uh, uh, pieces of standardized risk assessment or standardized, uh, you know, SMS or EOC procedures, things like that. Um, you know, getting a lot of connectivity there uh, through our website, which is obviously sort of a stage three or stage four project, but, uh, uh, you know, really looking to use the Internet as not just a, an advocacy uh, portal or a, uh, you know, uh, online resource portal, uh, but also as a, uh, a safety, an active safety connectivity portal as well. Okay. And I, I was going to ask you about that members only, so that there, there is no double secret stuff there, because I was going <laughs> to uh, compliment, yes. compliment you on the, you know, the resources that you already do have, and now with the enhancement, that's going to be a, a very nice, nice site, so I'll make sure our listeners, you should go over there, there's all your papers are right there and uh, able to download. Um, what's in store for the future of MO? What I think increased focus on our safety committees is critical. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, and, and also gaining recognition uh, within our industry as uh, a group of operators that are truly uh, putting their money into and their efforts into enhancing uh, safety. Uh, you know, historically, uh, Ed, everyone has tried to have a a piece of the safety pie, and I and I think it's great that all of our associations are taking an active interest in aviation safety. I think we have to demonstrate, though, that we are the ones that are capable of taking all the information that's out there and, and putting it into action plans that actually have a positive income. Over the past, you know, I flew my first transport in the U.S. in 1974. And since that time, I've been involved uh, one aspect or another almost uh, continuously in aviation and, 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 and uh, specifically in, in air medical transport. And I've served with uh, 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 some wonderful people that were well-intended 
uh, on various safety committees and congresses, et cetera. And the outcome was oftentimes negated by uh, a lack of focus by the industry to take those uh, recommendations, those actions, uh, those efforts, and, and put them into uh, uh, good practices. This, this group of people uh, are focused on that. They know it makes a difference. They have a financial stake. They have a reputation involved uh, that, that, that they need to protect. And, and I believe uh, uh, hopefully by 2011 will be recognized uh, by uh, more than just uh, HAI. Uh, and the FAA, but by other leaders in our industry that, that we are focused on safety and, and we are going to bring about change. Great. Well, Howard and Chris, I really appreciate you both taking the time. I know you're busy, I'm sure, getting ready for HAI too, so uh, uh, appreciate uh, your time and being on the podcast. Thank, Thank you very much, Ed. Right. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206 3500278 There will not be an episode of the podcast next week, but I will resume again the first week of March. Air Medical News and Information will be available on Twitter and Facebook, and I will be podcasting, but only on the American Berkebiner Nordic Ski Race being held in northern Wisconsin on February 27th. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers, and also the family, friends, and colleagues of the Southwest Medevac Transport Team lost on February 5th. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.